This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, everybody. Welcome back to Session 2, Faces of Mexico, Arts and Culture. The panelists will discuss how the opening of the Mexican economy under NAFTA has affected the ability of writers, filmmakers, actors, musicians, and artists to reach international audiences. Speakers will also provide observations on how changes in Mexico in the last two decades have influenced their work. UC Mexis director Ezequiel Escura will serve as moderator. Escuda is the director at the University of California Institute for Mexico and the United States, UC Mexis. Also a professor of plant ecology at UC Riverside, his 30-year career has been honored worldwide for his contributions, both as an academic and as an active conservationist. Ignacio Duran is deputy director of the National Institute of Fine Arts Mexico, General Director at the Educational and Cultural Television Unit Mexico, Director General at the Mexican Film Institute, a Vice President at TV Azteca, and Director at the Mexican Cultural Institute in Washington. Monica Lavin has published more than 20 books and won several national awards for her short stories, essays, and novels. She's a creative writing professor at the Universidad Autónoma de la Ciudad de México and currently writes for El Universal. Luis Felipe Ortega has been doing solo and collective exhibitions for sculpture, installation, photography, and drawing since 1993. In 2001, the Center Pompido acquired his collaboration Remake 1994 and held his most recent solo exhibition at Marso Gallery in Mexico City in 2013. Manuel Paz Castillo is a Tijuana native who studied voice training in Mexico, the United States, and Russia. After initial interest in ranchara music, he trained in opera, performing with Secuts Opera Ambulante, the Tijuana Opera, and serving as a core member of the San Diego Opera Chorus. And we're going to begin this, this, after, or this morning rather with Manuel. Oh, 
se vuelve a quitar cuando es para ti. I think we're going to begin with Ignacio. Is that correct? Yes. Well, we were supposed to to sing the the slave chorus from Nabucco, but regretfully, 
time is against us. <laughs> so I'll start. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies at the University of California in San Diego for their generous invitation to participate in Mexico moving forward 20 years of NAFTA and beyond, hosted by the School Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies. I would like to thank Manuel Weinberg with special appreciation and friendship. We'd also like to recognize Melissa Floca and Portia Biff for their courtesy and gracious help. Now, because this is something that uh, it really focuses in uh, on NAFTA economy and uh, figures, results, uh, I think I'll do my very best to draw a picture of the shape the Mexican film industry is in 20 years after the North American Free Trade Agreement was signed. As a point of departure, maybe a brief glance to the Mexican film industry will be fitting. Both film industries uh, on either side of the Rio Bravo have been plagued with the stereotypes about each other. We will see some descriptive moments. Finally, I will bring back the memories of the stand the film community took back in 1993 and 94 when the treaty was negotiated. To wrap up this talk, we will share an overview of the current situation in Mexico. Now, the first screening of the new invention took place in Platero Street, uh, only seven months after the famous showing in Paris. Gabriel Vaire was the cameraman and producer that showed the first moving images projected on a screen for 50 cents at El Salon Rojo, and people watched in awe the arrival of the train, the car players, Baby Lumiere having his breakfast. And very soon, this invention caught the public's attention. And in no time, audiences were able to see, to watch Don Porfirio's little promenade in Chapultepec Park, dancers attacking with gusto the Mexican hat dance and Rodolfo Gaona in the bull ring. The 1910 revolution gave way to the great years of the documentary tradition. In those years when the world was storm-driven and needs were so urgent that shot everything else from view, Salvador Toscano, the Alba brothers, and many others captured the fury and the passion, the somber passion of the day. In the 20s after the hard years of the revolution, everything had to be reinvented. The weapons at hand were schools, libraries, murals in public buildings, education and agriculture that led the changes that swept the country. Movies, I'm afraid, were left on the side. Vasconcelos didn't trust them. 
It's an asunto de gringos, he used to say. Now, the 30s saw Einstein's regrettably unfinished film, Que Viva Mexico, and later on the emergence of two popular genres. On the one hand, the Mexican melodrama. And the screens were filled with severe and rigorous fathers, crying mothers, and ungrateful sons and daughters. The Mexican rancheras came after, that praised the virtues of the ranch in countless films populated by singing charros and mariachi bands. By the same token, Mexico City became the inspiration for another popular genre, urban melodrama. The smoked field dancing club, where the tart with a heart of gold makes countless sacrifices to send her little sister to a nun's school so she can become a decent young girl. This is the world where Pedro Vargas, Toña la Negra, and Los Panchos sing the misfortunes of Ninon Sevilla, the fallen woman. Now, in the 40s, cinema was at last taken seriously. The film industry was born in film production through studios like San Angel, Azteca, Tepeyac, Churubusco, and distribution companies paved the way for Mexicans, Mexico's dominance in the Latin American market. That took place in the 50s and lasted into the 60s. Now, the 70s were quite dark in the whole of Latin America, from porno chanchadas in Brazil to the infamous Fichera films in Mexico. Movies of abysmal quality that made one shiver in horror. That sad landscape changed in the 90s, when young filmmakers with great talent and imagination made pictures with a different point of view that addressed wider issues. In fact, Lubezki, Cuarón, Guillermo del Toro, Navarro, and Rodrigo Prieto are a good example of that generation. The 90s was also the decade of, of denationalization, when the government pulled out of the Mexican film industry after 40 years of full-scale support. That was bad news. Now, maybe it's natural that countries that share borders develop a defensive view of each other. It happened throughout history. In fact, the Greeks called everyone else barbarian. The Romans had a condescending attitude towards everyone in imperial times. And England and France were fierce rivals for two centuries. Besides all the painful issues in our common past, the movies that Mexico and the United States have made of each other have a very difficult relationship, tattered, to say the least. Cinema shows what societies think of the world and what the societies think of themselves. Films like La Rosa Blanca, 
como Agua para Chocolate, El Jardín del Edén, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, His Majesty the American, and Traffic, to mention some, look an Ameri to Americans and Mexicans under a very unfavorable light, with distrust and prejudice. Even when guided with the best of intentions, film like Viva Zapata and The Fugitive or El Jardín del Edén are full of stereotypes that are very much in place. The bloodthirsty bandido, the robber baron, the dumb blonde, the beautiful señorita continue to appear once and again in the narratives. Regrettable for two countries that in the future will share a common sense of destiny. NAFTA. I mentioned before that the 19th brought with them the time of denationalization. So the film community, community was quite disgruntled when the aid of the government was taken away. Here are some of the new rules of the game when NAFTA was negotiated. A new cinematographic law was passed in, by Congress in 1993 in preparation to NAFTA. That law wrote off the 50% screen time for Mexican films. Now they had to compete on equal terms with Hollywood. On the other hand, uh, Mex films were allowed to be dubbed. Every foreign material was allowed to be dubbed. And the, the Motion Picture Association of America expressed repeatedly a strong interest in having the film industry in NAFTA, given the fact that Canada had decided to exempt the so-called cultural industries from the treaty. We cannot have our two main partners exempting film from the treaty, said to me the Motion Picture Association representatives. Now, as we know, NAFTA was signed. And the aftermath, the tough years, the immediate years after 1994 were very dark for Mexican cinema. What happened is that without the financial aid provided by the government, the market focused towards inexpensive commercial films and film production dropped down to the lowest number in history. Domestic distribution disappeared and exhibitors opted for American films, European, Latin American and Asian pictures virtually disappeared from movie theaters. The situation deteriorated to the point the government considered closing down Churubusco Studios and closing down also the Mexican Film Institute. Now, fortunately, 10 years ago, uh, the government decided to come back slowly. Uh, nowadays, it gives incentives, tax breaks for about six 
100 million pesos a year. So that means that about 110 films are produced every year. But then they have to queue patiently for a limited release after the Hollywood blockbusters. This means that Spider-Man and the Avengers rule supreme. Now, against the lots, ladies and gentlemen, once more, Mexican cinema survived by the skin of our teeth. With great recognition in international film festivals, good box, box office returns, are we going through a boom? Is this going to last? Too soon to tell. In the end, the answer lies in the films themselves, the only trustworthy testimony of Mexican culture. Thank you very much. Thank you. Seems natural. Since we didn't sing, we have to come here, no? <laughs> exactly. Well, it is a pleasure. I thank you very much for being here. I thank you, CSD, and all the, the staff that went through this delicate organization for the opportunity to be here, to listen to this analysis of what has been going on in Mexico after NAFTA, and to be able to think and share our thoughts from our own experience or our field of experience. Um, President um, Napolitano referred to Octavio Paz's accent on dialogue as um, uh, understanding the other. I think literature is one of the finest instruments to look to the other, to understand otherness. Um, I was listening and looking at all the graphs and seeing what's going on on the uh, cattle, the market, the, the, the assembly of cars, the China. The, and um, I thought that all this that is hard uh, information wouldn't have a meaning if there was not a literary counterpart. That is, what has happened with our lives in those 20 years, how, how, how our dreams, accomplish, accomplishments, or failures have happened. And that's where liter literature uh, shines, because it's the memoir of our lives. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through, through what has been going on from the writer experience in the last 20 years, briefly, of course, um, I think literature has the power uh, to, of memory to retain time because who would doubt, for example, that Carlos Fuentes' uh, La Región Más Transparente uh, gives uh, precise uh, information, mood, emotion of the times after revolution, the 50s. Or who would doubt that Californian writer, Nobel Prize, John Steinbeck, talks about agriculture in the 30s through East of Eden and Grapes of Wrath better than perhaps many studies, at least much more from the emotional part of, or from the human condition, which is what literature is about after all. Literature cannot, one couldn't write uh, graphics or statistics. Maybe you could, you could uh, 
talk about how many more readers there are, how the uh, industry, publishing industry has behaved, how many more writers exist in the country. But writing is about uncertainty. That's why I chose this title, Writing as a Hanging Bridge. The act of writing is like standing in a hanging bridge. The stake of falling is always there. There is no guarantee you will get to the other side, not to mention if you will do it safely. You won't. If you were looking for safety, writing would not be your way of life. I refer to the hanging bridge not only as the sense of uncertainty that accompanies the accomplishment of a novel, short story, or other literary piece, but also because for the circle to be closed, others must be involved, the editor, the publisher. In Mexico, we just have one word for, for both figures, the editor, the bookseller, and of course, the reader. The hanging bridge is made by the complicity of all those involved, being the writer at one rim, the other rim the reader, luckily meeting at the center with an illusion provided by words, thus the bridge. The book itself being the passage, the object, being virtual or, or printed. So writing, or rather connecting with the reader, even if Faulkner said it only required paper and pencil, involves a process, a social process. Let us see by the, this premise what has been going on in Mexico in the past 20 years. I think the biggest change is the, the Fonca uh, appearing in the cultural scene. Fonca is the f national fund for, creating, for art creation. And by this means, this support, uh, this stimuli, it's not called a grant, it's called a stimuli. Many artists in different fields have benefited from the existence of this funding. And we're talking about uncertainty, and uncertainty means, uh, are you going to finish the book? Are you going to fill the objectives you want? How long will it take? How much research you have to do? Will somebody publish it? Will somebody read it? Will it make a change? Um, this uh, area of risk, uh, experimentation, uh, has to do... Uh, again with uncertainty and with a tradition important in Mexico. The state as a promoter of the arts uh, with, this, um, with this important uh, promo uh, support, writers and other artists can devote to their field of interest. The Sistema Nacional de Creadores, it's given after 35 years of age, you have to have some, um, have shown you have a uh, trayectoria, I forgot the word, <laughs> and um, you're given it for three years where you have to inform of what you've been doing and um, you get um, money that might um, change the balance in order not to do the multitask or freelance jobs that uh, will take you away from your writing. You cannot survive from that only, but it makes a great difference. It has made a great difference also for the youngest writers. Uh, since you can be 19 and try to be part of Fonca, young writer um, part. And so this has really changed the writing scenario in Mexico. I was a part of the selecting committee of the Sistema Nacional de Creadores last year, and you could see it was very hard 
Everybody wants to get in there. Everybody uh, needs Fonca. And, uh, of course, there's a lot of talent. And from 270 that apply, just 20 could be chosen. So that's hard poets, essayists, novelists. And, and of course, some, some won't like you anymore, probably. And you'll be on the other side, like I've been on other times. But what I could see, or what we discussed between the ones that were there, is how the younger ones that have had this privilege when I was their age, there was no school of writers, there was not Fonca, there was just the Centro Mexicano de Escritores, uh, which was very important at its time. Rulfo and Arreola were the ones that uh, conducted and tutorized the writers. Uh, you can see that the youngest writers have done a lot of experimenting, of devoting their time to writing, so they have prizes, they have been published internationally and nationally, especially by independent publishing houses, which is part of what's been going on too. Um, the publishing um, situation, we have big publish. we have Fondo de Cultura Económica, which is 60% per of the publishing is done there, it's state uh, owned. And the other are the uh, independent, big commercial houses, merging industries that uh, cannot bet on literature for their strongest part. Literature, 5,000 um, units is a good, in Mexico that's considered good for literature. So what's blooming now, it's the independent houses. Uh, they also can get uh, funds from the state and they're, they don't have the pressure to sell. They can sell a small amount of books and that keeps their balance. So we're seeing like Sexto Piso, Bonobos, um, Fosforo, just to drop a few names, or to see how Almadia, a Oaxacan-located uh, publishing house, it was a family business uh, that provided for all the school supplies in Oaxaca, and Almadia has it seems like it has united to the contemporary Oaxacan uh, strong uh, art and cultural movement because it publishes beautiful books, authors. Uh, you, you can bet that they have strong authors. They also translate and publish, and they have beautiful imaginative book uh, designing. So they're doing, they're doing fine. Uh, the themes that um, we can notice in the past or the recent years are deal with either the novela historica or new historic novel. The revision of our past seems to be a constant preoccupation. It was since Noticias del Imperio 30 years ago, and the new novela historica uh, revises our history, but desacralizing, demythifying de the bronze figures of our history, in a way rewriting ourselves as we write historica, novela historica. Also, you can see a flourishing of the, what, what's been called la, the narco-novela uh, that deals with the narco themes or the violence or the female abuse. Uh, this has even found a language for it, like what Elmer Mendoza, Humberto Cross White uses. Or, and this is a situation that, does, uh, that deals with the north of Mexico, the border being very present, as you, well very, you know very well, the Secut in Tijuana. Uh, also, we've enjoyed the opera singers from Secut. But uh, there has been a very strong um, identity movement in Tijuana that has... Um, made um, 
a label. We, we say there's la literatura del norte. The narco literatura might be part of it, but it's not the only thing that's happening. It's like a very postmodern literature, uh, like what Cristina Rivera Garza, a professor uh, here at UCSD, a very no well-known writer is doing. She's using um, all kinds of documents, ways of looking at things, uh, even that Twitter has uh, been made part of what I think of the social networks. Twitter is what has really changed or made a click for writers when it's used for our, it's because of its aphoristic possibility. And the other theme that's, uh, that's happening now, and it, this is a question for myself and for everybody, is uh, writers are dealing with personal memoir. Personal, it's like a reflection is needed, and we can see it through the latest published novels that have been awarded, like Julian Herbert's Canción de Tumba, that won the Elena Poniatowska recently. Um, it, this is a new prize, that uh, new award that um, the Mexico City cultural area of the government gives, uh, founded, and he got this prize. Also, uh, Miriam Moscona writing. Uh, about her Sephardi background and her personal memory uh, has won the Villaurrutia Prize. And last week or last two weeks, Rafael Pérez Gay won the Mazatlán Literary Prize for El Cerebro de Mi Hermano that deals with sickness and the relationship with his brother, Jose Maria Espinaza, that recently died. So I think personal memory is part of the themes that are being, the, the way um, we're looking or the way um, personal life meets literature in some of the actual writers in Mexico. I myself, I'm, I'm tempted and I'm going into that field too. And um, just to finish, I think our, our most notable voices, our conscience, our, uh, the, the eyes, because I believe literature has an optical dimension. That means it, it is good to see what's far away, to magnify what's very small. And of course, it has a mirror, it's a reflection uh, um, quality in it. And, uh, our most important voices, we have lost them uh, in the past few years and in the last few months. Carlos Fuentes died recently, Carlos Monsiváis, Jose Emilio Pacheco, Federico Campbell. Uh, they were the voice of a time, a conscious conscience. Uh, they were lights that made us look at ourselves and around ourselves at Mexico and at the others. So with this literary orphanage, I think we are witnessing or we're about to witness what will come out of this. Who are the new voices or there won't be uh, such a few. Diversity is what um, characterizes what is being written right now and I guess the voices that we'll, uh, we will identify with are about to emerge or to, to happen. Thank you very much. Buenos dias. Um, 
Eh, gracias por la invitación. Gracias, Melissa, Alexis. Eh, gracias por estar aquí. Voy a hacer una, una lectura que habla un poco como mucho más como desde adentro, como del proceso de, de producción y de trabajo de las, de las obras visuales. Eh, casi como desde este proceso de trabajo de unos 20 años, 25 años. Titulé esta lectura La Calle, El Estudio, Los Otros, Uno Mismo y Algo sobre el Presente. Intentaré hablar y pensar en los próximos minutos en términos de posibilidad. Por muchas razones, posibilidad es un término o un concepto que abriga algo más que un posible. Es un término duro, en tanto que apunta hacia adelante, tiene que venir de algún lugar. Es decir, obliga a hablar en términos históricos, obliga y permite hacer genealogías. ¿Qué es lo que hace que uno sea, qué es lo que hace que algo sea posible o no? ¿En qué permite que algo sea, no sea posible, que, te, que se transforme en imposibilidad? Estamos aquí y podríamos pensar que algo es posible, que algo parecido al acto de la reflexión, al acto mismo del pensamiento, comenzaría a vislumbrarse en algún momento, en algún gesto, en alguna palabra, quizá en algún sonido. Entonces, una especie de silencio parecería necesario, una mayor atención a los gestos del otro, de los otros, Sería lo mínimo que necesitaríamos para poder aprenderlo y ver en ese gesto, en ese sonido, en esa palabra, una acción posible. Un acto que transforme este aquí y este ahora en este momento. Como si una transformación inaudita nos hiciera pensar, pasar a otro ahora, a una hora diferente, diferenciado. Haciendo un corte ahí donde todo parecía donde parecía que todo era una especie de tiempo continuo. Si algo así puede suceder, quiere decir entonces que hemos cambiado de posición, quiere decir que hay un cambio de lugar, que aquí seguimos y sin embargo ya estaríamos en otro tiempo. Pertenezco a una generación, la que cruzó de los años 80 a los 90 en México, una generación que parecía vivir y estar en un momento complicado, en un momento que eran muchos momentos. Políticamente parecía que habíamos dejado atrás el barco, un barco con el casco roto, una serie de hendiduras, pero aún flotando. Si es verdad que toda generación vive un momento trágico y tiene un momento de esplendor, la mía había pasado ya por el primer momento por el derrotero de la tristeza que sigue a todo momento de desesperanza. Las elecciones de 1988 habían sido de alguna manera eso, un punto de anclaje gris, un inicio tan sórdido como inaudito. Ahí donde nada es eso que vemos, entonces hay que aprender a mirar de otro modo el presente, hay que buscar otra manera de estar con los otros. Comencemos con las preguntas. ¿Qué significaba aprender a estar de otro modo? 
¿Quiénes eran esos otros? Habría que entender esto como un giro juvenil que hace de la existencia una especie de acto heroico. No. La respuesta inmediata es no. Para aquellos jóvenes que comenzábamos a correr el riesgo de ser artistas, parecía que no era tan inmediato el cobijo del, del existencialismo, ni siquiera el del nihilismo, y mucho menos el del anarquismo. Estábamos parados frente a un momento que implicaba un corte, una transición mucho más duro, dura de lo que nuestro espíritu radical podía entrever. El corte se estaba produciendo ya, y sus consecuencias serían inevitables. Visto a la distancia, podría plantearse la pregunta sobre cuáles fueron, específicamente en el arte, las condiciones que hicieron posible su metamorfosis, que obligó a que la escuela heredada por la pintura y la escultura fuera abandonada para ir hacia otro lado. Concretamente, ¿hacia dónde y qué o quién podía señalar esa ruta? La pregunta era necesaria si queríamos transformar los modos en que uno puede entenderse a partir de una práctica. No solamente porque soy lo que hago, sino porque la pregunta sobre el hacer hay que ponerla en un marco mucho más amplio, en el marco de la necesidad. En el marco de lo que necesito de esa práctica y qué implica responder a esa necesidad. Ante un momento, un aquí y ahora, que había apagado las voces, que había dejado que había dejado en un largo, muy largo balbuceo a la voz que en otros momentos era capaz de lanzar un rugido encolerizado, ante una especie de silencio que comenzaba a reinar en muchos ámbitos creativos, la pregunta sobre uno mismo, la pregunta que invierte y que va, a, y que va filtrando el es cómo podemos recurrir a la cosa, a determinado tipo de lenguaje, a determinado tipo de recursos visuales para provocar vínculos que nos puedan posicionar en relación al otro. No se trata ya de ir a la búsqueda de una sensibilidad que nos había marcado y que nos daba cierta identidad, sino de recurrir a una transformación de herramientas que son capaces de desestabilizar eso que creíamos que podíamos ser desde nuestra práctica. Parado sobre este corte, sobre ese límite y ese tiempo, que son muchos tiempos, esos primeros años de los 90 fueron un intenso laboratorio para sondear los límites de una posible transformación. El trabajo sobre la historia, la posibilidad de trabajar con la historia y reformularla desde una serie de actores que no habían aparecido ahí, incluir posiciones precisas para generar lenguajes y acceder a ciertas maneras en la producción del saber. Se trataba de aprender, de dejar ver los procesos, abrir el espacio a ciertas formas de lo indeterminado, hacia una creencia de que algo podía pasar. Desde muchos espacios, desde muchos planos del saber, desde una multiplicidad de geografías e identidades, desde muchos grupos y desde muchas lenguas, se estaba articulando la posibilidad de pensar de otro modo. Dentro y fuera, dos esferas que hacían pensar en una convivencia que en otras épocas y en otros lugares habían sido posibles. ¿Por qué no reactivarlas? ¿Por qué no incorporarlas? ¿Por qué no hacer de este tiempo otros tiempos? 
¿por qué no dejarnos ver desde la diferencia, desde un espacio que no ha sido marcado como espacio de la visibilidad, sino la del sujeto que quiere pensarse y dejarse ver como aquel que se piensa? Hacia 1994 ya era muy claro que trabajar de otro modo, que el producir de, otra, eh, de otro modo, el poder producirse de manera diferente y hacer la diferencia. Desde otro saber, desde otro saberse. Allá, allá en las montañas parecía volverse a escuchar un rugido y ese grito recorrió el país por muchos años. La posibilidad también de perderse en esa transformación. Hay razones específicas y concretas para creer que dicha transformación y posicionamiento de los procesos creativos en todos los sectores sociales de los años 90 apelaron a una manera de escapar a las formas de control, de aquellas que unifican el pensamiento y que en cierta manera lo aniquilan. Apostar contra el control desde ciertos procesos creativos entendido como proceso de resistencia, permite releer la historia de ese momento en México como algo más que un puro reacomodo de los sistemas de globalización. Obliga a ver las especificidades en la instauración de ciertas maneras de hacer que se volvieron nuestras. Los años 90 son, en buena medida, el momento en que los artistas procuramos construir sistemas de diálogo y procesos de conocimiento que implicaban un proceso de pensamiento crítico. Si comienza a reconocerse que algo estaba pasando ahí, va más allá de la mera especulación en cuanto al reconocimiento de una manera de proceder en relación a la cosa, llámese obra de arte. Es la pregunta misma sobre cómo se comporta y dónde y cuándo algo que es un procedimiento específico para salir de los sistemas de control de los mecanismos que las sociedades disciplinarias imponen como mecanismos para estar dentro del sistema. Los artistas, es cierto, importamos un tipo de información que no estaba incluido en las maneras de entender el arte. Hicimos un proceso de ingesta para alimentarnos de aquello que no estaba en el menú de los sistemas formativos, escuelas, talleres, espacios de difusión. Salimos a alimentarnos en zonas fuera de control del Estado, incluso cuando el Estado nos estaba patrocinando. Quizá eso todavía falta por leerse y discutirse, desde el ámbito de las artes visuales, desde el ámbito de las artes visuales. México llegó al nuevo milenio desde la producción y el pensamiento crítico. Arribó con obras que, leídas en su complejidad, levantaron el andamiaje de nuestro tiempo. Si hoy México ocupa un lugar importante dentro del arte contemporáneo, es porque aprendió de ese proceso crítico de pensamiento. Esa crítica se eclipsó por un tiempo y hoy vuelve a ganar terreno. Esa es quizá la mejor aportación del arte de los últimos 20 años. Hablar en términos de posibilidad. Y toda posibilidad lleva implícita la marca del fracaso. Incluso, cuando parece que triunfa, estamos hablando del fracaso. De lo contrario, el arte perdería su esencia, la de ser un espacio de resistencia. Muchas gracias. I would like to end this 
completely off the program. I hope uh, Melissa doesn't hate me. With just one point of reflection to end it. As, as a natural scientist and not as, as an artist myself, I think that one of the most basic aspects of culture is food. <laughs> and this, of course, is a because we're going to eat tacos now. But think about this for a second. Uh, we are very proud, as a matter of fact, thanks to the wonderful work of Cristina Barros, Mexican cuisine is now part of, uh, has been recognized uh, as part of World Heritage um, in, in the Heritage Committee, and that makes us really proud. But, having said that, with NAFTA, we got an amazing change in the Mexican diet. For those of you that come from Mexico City, you remember the Molino de Nixtamal? <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. We're eating now industrialized food, and the consequences are terrifying. According to the Minister of Health, Mercedes Juan, with whom I've spoken this thing, there are kids that are nine years old and have already adult-onset diabetes. Yes. With a life expectation of not more than 35 years. This is the consequence of one of the... This is, for me, the elephant in the room around uh, the consequences of free trade. We have had an amazing change in, in the way we eat. Um, we are only now starting to be aware of that. And, of course, that has a scientific component, but for me it has way more than that a cultural component that we need to discuss and learn and uncover. But that will be a subject, hopefully, Melissa, for a next uh, Mexico Moving Forward meeting. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.